Great to be here with you this morning as we kick off our new series, Messiah. Of course, this is Palm Sunday, where we remember the triumphal entry of Christ as he entered into Jerusalem on what will launch what we call Passion Week or Holy Week. Of course, several days after the triumphal entry, Christ dies on the cross for our sins. And then, spoiler alert, a week from Sunday as we gather is Resurrection Sunday as we come and celebrate the fact that our, our Savior is a risen Savior. Amen, church? And so this is, this is an important Sunday as we look at what Jesus did in, as far as starting out this amazing week that changed the lives of anyone who receives him as Lord and Savior. Yet what we discover is that the crowd that was there when Jesus entered into Jerusalem celebrated Jesus, but as I will share with you this morning, probably for some wrong reasons. Uh, they struggled with, uh, with, with celebrating Jesus for who he truly is. In fact, uh, I believe that many of us, if we were to be honest, me included, would say we still fall into the same temptations. Uh, so before we even jump into the message this morning, I want us all to ask ourselves a very important question. Very important question. What kind of Jesus do you want him to be? Think about it for a minute. What type of Jesus do you want him to be? Now you may say, Craig, what do you mean by that? And I believe that all of us can fall into the trap of, of trying to serve a Jesus of our own making or desire, desiring a Jesus of our own making. And, and let me give you some, some for instances. You know, there's sort of like the ibuprofen Jesus. You know? Jesus says, cover up my pain. Maybe the shopping spree Jesus. Maybe like that one, you know, Lord, just give me what I want. You know, just give me what I want. Make me happy. There may be the therapist, Jesus. You know, Jesus, tell me what, Jesus, just tell me what I need to hear so I can move on. I, I mean, we could add so many other types of Jesus of our own making. And, and yet we, we this morning have to realize and come to grips with the fact that sometimes that even we as believers, even we as followers of Christ, Sometimes we'd rather have a Messiah of our own making than the one true Messiah. We would rather him follow our leading than for us to do his will. We would rather have him help us build our kingdom than, than really to be a part of building his. So the passage we're about to explore presents a crowd. There's a great celebration and, and the temptation is to sort of be pulled into the to text and sort of put into it the motives of those who are celebrating Jesus. I know I have found myself doing that from time to time, but what I want us to do this morning is look at the text for what it is. Look at what Mark's gospel shares about this triumphal entry and the crowd that was there and the Jesus whom they're truly celebrating. And so we're going to be in Mark's gospel. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can also follow on the screen. Uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 together this morning on this Palm Sunday. Now, when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage of Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. I, I gotta pause there for a minute because it's one of my favorite parts of, of the, of the account and it has no spiritual meaning whatsoever. But I love the fact that Jesus is saying, go get this colt and when they think you're stealing it, tell them this. 
I mean, that's really what's happening there. How do you know? Look at verse 4. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they, and they told them what Jesus said, and they let them go. I love that. Verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. As we look at this account, as well as the other recordings in the scripture, we come to surmise that there are at least four groups of people that were here that made up this crowd. Four groups. And I want to just look at these four groups together. The first group is the crowd themselves. And and this is the excitement uh, that was there, that they're throwing cloaks before Jesus and, and lengthy palm branches before him as he's entering in Jerusalem. They're, they're just shouting out, Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what do we know about the crowds that follow Jesus? Well, the crowds that followed Jesus often were excited about what Jesus was doing, although they were not always celebrating him as the Messiah, truly for who he was. When, when Jesus, in fact, taught about the kingdom of God and what it meant to be a part of it, many times they would say, this teaching's too tough for us, and they would leave. Jesus, in his own words, would say to the crowd at times, You're only here to see the miracles. You're here to see the show. You're here for the free lunch. In fact, you can picture the crowd sort of inviting their friends and saying, hey, do you want to go see Jesus? And them say, well, I'm a little busy. They say, well, it's a great show. I don't know. You might be able to get a free lunch out of it. Sure. Sure, I'll come. So it's very possible that this crowd that's around Jesus are not celebrating the real Jesus, but one of their own making. Then another group is the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted a Jesus who wouldn't get in the way of their religiosity, their legalistic religion. They wanted a Jesus who wouldn't cause problems for them. They didn't want him to to upset the Romans, and somehow the Pharisees would lose their power and their prestige by the Roman overlords. In fact, we see throughout the Gospels that the Pharisees, yeah, they hung around Jesus, but they hung around Jesus often to try to trip him up and, and to get rid of him. And so the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with the real Jesus. At least most of them didn't. The third group is the Zealots. The Zealots were, they wanted Jesus to to throw out the Romans. They they wanted a war leader. They wanted someone who would just sort of get the Romans out of their life and somehow bring back in the the kingdom, which was Jerusalem and and Israel, and and allow Israel to once again rise to prominence and and prestige within the region and and with no Romans left in the kingdom. So certainly the, the Zealots were looking for a Jesus in their own making, and this wasn't the one who was riding on a colt into Jerusalem that day. Then the disciples. You would think if anyone understood what was going on, it was them. But the disciples really wanted a Jesus who would advance their desire to rule alongside him. They wanted power and they wanted prominence. They, at this point, seemed little interested in the mission of Jesus and little little did they even really understand it. When Jesus would speak about his suffering and, and the kingdom of heaven, 
Often the disciples in the Gospels, we find, change the subject and ask the question, but where will we be when you come into your kingdom? What will our position be? Now, they would, obviously, this would all change after the resurrection, but at this moment, on this Palm Sunday, the disciples reveled in this Jesus who would establish his kingdom and the most more prestigious life that they would have with him. Now, by the way, it's easy to blame these four groups. It's easy in our comfy chairs to look back 2,000 years ago and get and say, why didn't you get it? Wasn't it obvious who Jesus really was? But we're not always, if we were to be honest, that excited about the real Jesus either. There's times in our life where we're tempted, at least in my life, where I'm tempted in those moments to try to make Jesus something I want him to be. And yet in reality, which is far less than he really is. Mark in his account spends more time than any of the other gospel writers talking about the mode of transportation that Jesus used to go into Jerusalem, this cult. Now, why does Mark give us all these details? I think perhaps Mark wanted us to understand that that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. I think he wanted us to understand that at this moment in redemption, redemptive history, that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy as he rode into Jerusalem. And it's a way for Mark to say to us, look, this is the real Jesus. He's the real deal. Jesus is the one who's been spoken of by the prophets. I also think it's interesting that these disciples who have this vision of grandeur, are given this task of being donkey fetchers. How humbling. How humbling. It's a humbling moment in the life of these would-be leaders as they become such humble servants. They deliver the cult to Jesus, and he mounts it. He enters Jerusalem with the crowd celebrating, laying palm branches before him. They're singing. And the song they sing is from the Psalms. It's, it's important to note as we read this, that, that, that we don't want to, again, read into the moment. We want to see what the text is telling us about the moment. And the very song that they sang, we, we need to realize, was very familiar to every pilgrim that was heading to Jerusalem, that Passover. In fact, it was a typical song that pilgrims would sing every year as they came to the Passover, as they were, as they were going up to Jerusalem into the city. It, it, makes, it makes this scene of the crowd uh, a little less... I don't know, maybe spectacular in some ways, as, as really what they're singing is this typical song, as this person who they see as, as prophet and maybe great teacher, this miracle worker approached the gates of Jerusalem. What's amazing is that Mark makes it clear in the passage that the crowd was really speaking above their understanding. I think that's just such a remarkable reality. That they're singing this truth, but they're not totally understanding the truth. They're singing as Jesus is coming in, but they don't totally understand who this Jesus is. And Mark is showing us the power of God. That the crowd may not have understood everything that they were saying, but that God wanted us to understand as we look back and look at this moment that Jesus is Savior. They may not have understood that what his death was going to mean at that moment, even that he was going to die. But as we look at it, to understand that it was intended from the very beginning, that Jesus would offer salvation, that those who would receive him as Savior and Lord, even in the crowd, even now, we promise a life like no other. 
No, no, the crowd at this moment, they, they didn't understand that Jesus was the life giver. However, the crowd, unbeknownst to themselves, was a part of fulfilling prophecy. God the Father in his sovereignty appointed this very moment and appointed them to be a part of this, again, profound moment in redemptive history as Jesus enters in Jerusalem. God did this to fulfill prophecy. Mark records it so we will know this is the real Jesus. This is the real deal. In fact, we look at this passage in Mark really from two different levels. One level, we look at what God is doing in the moment. The other level, we look at the understanding of the people who are part of the scene. God is specifically fulfilling prophecy through the life of his son, and in so doing demonstrates that he's the God of ages, and that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, I mean, what a beautiful picture of God's power, of God's purpose. If the crowd had fully understood who Jesus was, they probably wouldn't have forsaken him when he walked into Jerusalem. So what do you mean? Well, Jesus walks into Jerusalem and the crowd isn't with him. They're not following him. If you believe Jesus is who he really is, how many of you think you're just going to want to hang around him? But they don't. In fact, what what happened to the crowd? Uh, when, When he enters into Jerusalem, we find that he's really alone with his disciples. It says him and his disciples. Everyone else has sort of gone and done their thing. I don't know about you, but when I'm focused on Jesus, which means there are times where I'm not so focused on Jesus, but when I'm focused on Jesus, I want to be where he wants me to be. I want to be with him. I want to be on mission with him. When I stray, when my mind strays, and and I'm not really focused on him, that I just sort of want things my own way. Where was the crowd? We know that the disciples were sort of clueless at this moment. And by the way, before we jump into that for a second, how many of us have been clueless? Don't raise your hand. Maybe it's just me. It's probably just me. You know, just totally clueless. Spiritually speaking, clueless at times. You know, you come to Christ and all of a sudden you look back and things make more sense in Christ than they did before Christ. Come in contact with people all the time, and part of the story is I didn't see God working here, 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 and here. And all of a sudden, I came to the Lord, and the Spirit gave me this insight. I looked back, and I realized He was working there. He was working there. Anyone give testimony to that? Yeah, but the disciples are clueless at this point, and so we can't really criticize them because all of us have been clueless. But, but how do we know they're clueless? Because John's Gospel, John 12, 16, he writes, His disciples did not understand these things at first. Didn't understand them at first. But when Jesus was glorified, And then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. What's he saying? After the resurrection, Jesus is before them, and like the Spirit's working in their minds, and they're they're like, now I get it. Like that triumphal entry thing was much bigger than we thought. Can you imagine how clueless and how hopeless they must have felt when Jesus dies on the cross and all their hopes and dreams, all the vision of grandeur, power, position, gone with Jesus' death? Not realizing that at that moment that Jesus died to deliver the world, them included. The resurrection comes. And Jesus had talked about the resurrection. And, And yet they're clueless. Some ladies come and tell the disciples, and the disciples said, we don't believe you. 
Peter runs, sees the empty tomb. There's even some in the group of ladies that says, look, whoever took Jesus, will you give him back? Then Jesus shows himself and says, no one took me. I'm God. I'm living. I'm all powerful. And things begin to fall into place in their minds. Think about it. Jesus is the one who provides salvation. He's the one that provides us this fullness of life. Only him. And when we try to make Jesus in our own making, he's far less than that. But when we come to the true Jesus, the one Mark wants us unmistakably to see, there's life like no other. It's clear that the prophecy of Zechariah 9 is fulfilled in this moment at Christ, as Christ enters Jerusalem. Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9 was written 500 years before the time of Christ. It's a powerful thing about prophecy. Prophecy is there so that when we look at it and see that Christ fulfilled it, it gives us confidence. We go for, for hundreds of years before. This wasn't happenstance. It wasn't just a, a good thing that, that, that Mark wants us to know. No, no, Zechariah 500 years before said these things would happen. And I, I was sort of being a history geek, was thinking, well, what, what happened like 500, what's 500 years? I know it's a long time, but how do I wrap my mind around that? 500 years from today for us. 500 years from today, Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, was walking on earth. That's pretty wild, right? Here's one. 500 years from today, Michelangelo was walking on earth. The painter, the sculptor, the old dude, right? Like way back then. It'd be like one of them writing about something happening at this very moment and it being true. Zechariah, 500 years before Christ, he rises, he says, he says, he writes, he says, Behold, the king comes riding on a colt. The people's reception rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion, shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem, and many other prophecies, not just from Zechariah, but from others, and Christ fulfills them all. Every one of them. The law of probability says it's improbable. Almost impossible. The prophecies fulfilled. So Mark confronts us. He really does. He confronts us with this unescapable truth that Jesus is King, Savior, and Lord. And in doing so, he points out that you can't merely call him a prophet. He's far more than a miracle worker or a good teacher. You can't reduce Jesus to one of your own making. We must honor him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Hosanna, save us, Lord Jesus. When we introduce, when we reduce Christ to something less, we really damage the gospel of Christ in our own lives. Christ will not be our servant, he'll be Lord. Christ will be, will not be our therapist, he'll be our eternal healer. Christ will not empower us to establish our temporal kingdom, but he invites us to be a part of his eternal kingdom where we're part of his forever family, and that's a pretty good deal. Think about it. You know, I like Christmas. Stay with me, okay? I, I like Christmas. Any of you who know me know I'm a Christmas junkie. Like even on my phone, I have a countdown. I look at it every day to see when, when I'm going to be able to, on October 1st, play Christmas music. I, I love Christmas. I really do. But there's something special about Easter. Now, by the way, you can't have Christmas and Easter separate, that Christmas is important, and Easter is important, that the birth of Christ, the coming of Christ, and the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ, all are tied together. Okay? But there's something unique about Easter. 
Society doesn't know what to do with Easter. They really don't. I was talking to someone this past week and they were talking about a new believer, someone sort of new to this thing called church. And, and they were talking about the fact that when we had Christmas this past year, that they said, wow, we didn't realize we celebrate the birthday of Jesus. You say, well, how did they not know that? Well, because society does a really good job of covering up why we celebrate Christmas. They don't do such a good job with Easter. Like Christmas has Santa. Wow. Easter has the Easter bunny. Like they can't come up with something better than that? You're following me, right? There's just something about the Easter message. There's something about why we, why we gather together a week from today to celebrate the risen Lord. Even in culture, it says, oh, I don't believe in Jesus. They still understand what we're doing. Why? Because you just can't cover it up. Jesus is Savior and Lord. Salvation is not in our own understanding. Lasting joy does not come in making Christ in our own image. Our hope, our salvation, genuine joy is found in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in him and him alone. So I ask you, what kind of Jesus do you want him to be? What kind of Jesus do you want him to be? One of my favorite verses in all the scripture I've had people say, oh, that verse is overused, and I think, well, you really can't overuse this one. <laughs> it, it summarizes the whole gospel in a nutshell. Like if someone's asked me, and I've many times been asked, well, what, what's the gospel? Summarize it for me. And I, I just quote this one verse. The one verse says it all. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. He loves you. He loves me. He loves us knowing what we do. In fact, he loves us in spite of what we've done. He loves people all over the world, everybody. He loves that annoying person at work or school. He loves everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, you know it, but have eternal life. That's the Jesus who's coming into Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago on that Palm Sunday. It's not the Jesus they recognize, but it's the real Jesus. It's who he is. And Mark writes this account in his gospel, so we won't miss out. He's saying, this is the real Jesus. Don't, don't fall for it, Jesus, of your own making or anyone else's. Come to the one who offers life. What kind of Jesus do you want him to be? Ultimately, it really doesn't matter. Because salvation is only found when we come to him as Messiah and Savior and Lord. I say maybe sometimes, and, and yet to be obvious, all of us that sometimes, maybe more excited about the Jesus of our own making, but the reality of it is we need the Jesus of Scripture. We need the true Jesus, the one who gave it all for us. What kind of Jesus do you long for? Do you long for the Jesus Mark is unmistakably putting before us? If you do, you must forsake the desire to remake the Messiah. Find rest and hope in the true Savior and King, the Messiah, Lord Jesus. Who do you want Jesus to be? A lesser version or the one that can revolutionize your life? 
Mark calls out to us. He says, come to the one who gave it all. Come to the one who loves you first. And O Lord Jesus, teach us how to truly desire and love you. Amen? If you've yet to come to that Jesus, the true Jesus, the lover of your soul, the God who created you to be in relationship with him, there's no better time than this Palm Sunday at this very moment, whether you're here on this campus or online to to say, Jesus, I I don't want to fall for the Jesus of my own making or someone else's making. I want you. I need you. And if you're here this morning, maybe you made that decision, and yet if you were to be honest, you're in situations that, that cause you to say, no, I want ibuprofen Jesus today. I want shopping spree Jesus today, therapist Jesus, whatever. No, 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 Lord God, I need you. The true Jesus. Give me life. Give me wisdom. Talked about being clueless. All of us are clueless. In fact, the scripture makes it really clear because over and over again it says, if you need wisdom, come to me. Why? Because we need his wisdom. And I stand as one this morning saying, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom to walk with you, to fall in love with you, to share you with others. Wherever you find yourself this morning, the Lord says, won't you take your next step with me? With him, the true Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we started our time in your word this morning by asking ourselves that crucial question. Who do we want Jesus to be? Or what what type of Jesus do we want? Or in a way of saying, you know, have we been seeking after a Jesus in our own making? God, I pray we're not. I pray, Father, that this morning that we're worshiping the true Jesus. That, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, that they would come to the true Jesus, that they come to the one who died for them, was resurrected and for their salvation, who lives even now and offers life to those who receive you. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you for, for being a risen Savior. I can't wait to gather again next week to celebrate the life we have in you. That you conquered death and in conquering death, you conquered our greatest fear. You gave us hope upon hope. And if anyone's made a decision at this moment to receive you as Lord and Savior, all of heaven is rejoicing and we with them. Father God, we gather here this morning to worship the true Jesus to receive your love and declare our love for you so that as we scatter, Lord God, we could share your love and message with those around us in the places where we live, where we work, where we go to school. Yes, where we play. Thank you for Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the true Messiah. We give you the glory in his precious and holy name. Amen.